welcome to the Ephesians in August podcast. This is episode one. Ephesians begins, like most of Paul's letters, with the usual writer to recipient formula, Paul to the church in. But right off the bat, we run into a significant interpretive problem. Most of our English translations of verse 1 read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. But some of the earliest manuscripts of this letter lack the key phrase, in Ephesus, or in Greek, en Epheso, leading to some speculation as to the identity of the original recipients. There are, of course, different options for understanding the implications of this textual problem. Option one would be that the phrase in Ephesus was in the original letter and accidentally omitted in these early manuscripts. Thus, the recipients were indeed the Ephesians. The second option is that in Ephesus was not original, but added later. In this case, the original wording of the opening verse would have been to the holy ones who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. This opens up the possibility that Ephesians was a circular letter addressed to the key churches in the Lycus Valley, churches like Ephesus, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Eventually, the letter was designated to the Ephesians. Andrew Lincoln proposes that there were originally not one, but two destinations, in which case the conjunction and or chi would combine the two place names. In his scenario, the original recipients were Christians in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So the original text read, to the holy ones who are in Hierapolis and in Laodicea, faithful in Christ Jesus. Later on, when the letter was widely circulated, the place names were deleted and the text read, to the holy ones who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. The question of the identity of the recipients reflects the observation that the grand and sweeping message of the letter extends beyond a specific group of readers to be relevant to the one holy and universal church. After the address and the grace greeting, we would normally expect to find the thanksgiving section, the place where Paul gives thanks to God for his readers and reports how he prays for them. Ephesians, however, begins with an extended blessing to God, followed by the thanksgiving section in verse 15. This is noteworthy because it indicates the importance that Paul is placing on this important note of worship to God. Here, the writer and the readers are swept up in an act of grateful praise to God. God is blessed for blessing his people. In this opening section of the letter, the grand sweep of God's redemptive plan is clearly depicted. It is a redemption that is both personal and cosmic, now and not yet, reaching beyond time and space. Its origins are from a time before time, and its culmination is in a grand and glorious future. The reader cannot help but have his or her horizons lifted up to the heavenlies. 
the mind-boggling grammar and syntax of Ephesians 1, 3-14 only adds to the grandness of the themes being discussed. These opening verses are a single 202-word sentence in the Greek text. It is the second longest sentence in the entire New Testament. Yoder Neufeld writes, These verses are not easy to read in the original Greek. Lengthy, cumbersome phrases, weighed down with chains of synonyms and nouns, qualified by overloaded adjectives, are fused into one long sentence that carries the immense freight of most of the great themes of the letter. Ironically, one gets the distinct impression that the author is more than aware that language, even when pushed to its limits, is inadequate to do more than weakly express the wonder of God's love and care for the cosmos and its inhabitants. When translating this passage into English, something does get lost in translation as the massive run-on sentences tamed and broken down into separate sentences to facilitate reading. Yoder Neufeld comments, A price is paid for this ease of reading. We lose the experience of reading or hearing the passage as one long, unbroken, deliberately exhausting recitation of how God has blessed us. The sentence breaks rob us of the experience of running out of breath as we bless God. From its opening words, the passage is fixed upon the worship of God. Ulogetos hotheos kai pater tu kuriu hemon Jesu Christu. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessing God is the core of worship. Paul's use of the word blessed reflects the prayer language of Judaism especially the prayers of adoration, which begin with the Hebrew word barakah, blessed. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. These Jewish prayers of blessing focus on God's gracious activity in creation, redemption, and revelation. Paul's prayer of adoration also focuses on the great acts of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. This opening verse declares that God is worthy of our praise. He is blessed. But the verse moves on to state the grounds for God's blessedness. He is the one who has blessed us. The, rema- the remainder of this passage builds on this opening statement by giving the specifics of the spiritual blessings that God has graciously lavished upon us. But this inventory of God's blessing of us does not take away from the central focus of the passage, which is the worship of God. Yoder Neufeld states, the way to bless God is to rehearse the blessings we have received at God's hand. The compact yet profound language of verse 3 tells us so much. The source of these blessings is God, the Blessed One. He has blessed us. The blessings themselves are spiritual in nature. They are described as spiritual 
blessings. Charles Hodge wrote, These blessings are spiritual not merely because they pertain to the soul, but because they are derived from the Spirit, whose presence and influence are the great blessing purchased by Christ. The locale of these blessings is in the heavenlies. This is the place where Christ now reigns, having triumphed over the spiritual forces of evil. Ephesians 2 verse 6 states that the Christian is already raised to new life and is seated with Christ in the heavenlies. This term, while enigmatic, does not refer to a place away from our present reality, nor a time in the distant future. Jesus reigns now. His enthronement in the heavenlies does not mean that he is somewhere out there, removed from our lives. He is the enthroned Lord of the universe, and his rule impacts our lives here in this time and place. The sphere and the agent of these blessings is Christ. These spiritual blessings are in and through Christ. Yoder Neufeld writes, Believers are in Christ in the sense that Christ is the sphere and the space where they meet God and experience every blessing in the heavenlies. At the same time, through the agency of Christ, God blesses, offers adoption, and thus a share in the inheritance, redeems, forgives, and thereby saves. Verse 3, like a densely packed snowball, is released, and rolling down the hill, it gathers momentum and grows into a huge mountain. In the verses that follow, Paul sketches out the details of these spiritual blessings in Christ, and we, the readers, try to grasp the language as it builds layer upon layer to its majestic conclusion. Many have tried to locate significant structural markers in order to comprehend its message. Yoder Neufeld and Lincoln emphasize that the three main participles in the section serve as headings for this account of God's blessing. Since the first participle is found in verse 3, the one who has blessed us, ha ulogesas. The next participle is the one who has predestinized, predestined us, pro orisias, in verse 5. And lastly, in verse 9, we read about the one who has revealed to us, gnorisas. On the other hand, Larkin sees a Trinitarian structure within the passage, with the Father electing, the Son redeeming, and the Spirit sealing. Each stanza concluding with the refrain, to the praise of his glory. Although this is rather too neat to be probable, the Trinitarian content of the passage is obvious. God the Father is the source of every blessing we enjoy. The repeated use of the preposition pro in the passage emphasizes the depth of God's initiative in reaching out to humanity. Verse 4, he chose us before pro, the foundation of the world. He predestined us, the verb pro-orisias, pro-orisias, 
for adoption as children in verse 5. He planned all this beforehand, stated in verse 9, which is the verb pro-etheto. The passage turns from verbs to nouns in order to emphasize God's love, grace, will, purpose, and plan. John Stott summarized it like this. The whole paragraph is full of God the Father, who has set his love and poured his grace upon us, and who is working out his eternal plan. The sphere within which and the agent through which the divine blessings are bestowed is the Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritual blessings are in and through Christ. The Father has chosen us in Him, that is, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The Father has predestined us for adoption as His children through Jesus Christ. The Father has freely given us His grace in and through the one He loves, that is, Christ. And in and through Christ we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of transgressions. Most importantly, the culmination of God's plan for the cosmos centers on Christ. The mission of God is plainly laid out in verses 9 to 10, which Yoder Neufeld describes as the apex of the recitation of God's blessings and the key to understanding the vision of Ephesians as a whole. Here we read that He, that is God, has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things into him, that is Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. God's plan is that all things which were created through Christ and for Christ and which hold together in Christ will finally be united under Christ by being gathered into Him and subjected to His Lordship. Reflecting on these verses, J.B. Lightfoot writes of the entire harmony of the universe, which shall no longer contain alien and discordant elements, but of which all parts shall find their center and bond of union in Christ. God's grand mission of cosmic reconciliation is already underway as a new humanity is being put together in and through Christ. Take a look at the rich diversity within the church and even within this cohort, the fact that we can sit together at the table of fellowship is evidence that God's work of reconciliation is already happening and we are a signpost to the cosmos that unity in Christ is possible. God's eschatological plan is both present and future. And as we exist in this time, in between the ages, we have a sure and certain hope. When we believed in Christ, we were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This concludes episode one of our Ephesians in August podcast. Tune in for the next one where we'll deal with the second half of chapter one.